You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, Quick strategic thinking is crucial, and with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown, and through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Thanks for downloading this very special edition of the Attacking Scrum podcast. We've been talking about this one for a while and been hugely excited about it. And hopefully you will enjoy this as much as we did. This is our chat with Sam Warburton, which we had this week. Big thanks to HarperCollins for sorting this out for us. But above everything, a big thanks to Sam for doing it. Such a good guy to speak to. Completely opened up with us. And there's lots and lots of great stuff in here. So enough from me. Sit back, relax and get stuck in to our very exclusive chat with Sam Warburton. Finds Lebron and he finds space and outside is James Hook. And he too with this support. Hits it the middle. Try surely for Wales. Warburton under the post. George North powering through. Up to the 22. Offloads to his skipper. And Sam Warburton pins his ears back and slides in. Dual Lions captain, Wales skipper, Cardiff Blues flanker, and now, I'm delighted to say, attacking scrum guest, Sam Warburton. Sam, welcome to the show. How are you? Very good, thanks. How are you? Yes, it's fantastic to, to have you on. Here to chat about, about your new book, which we're really excited to, to get stuck into. Really uh, thoroughly enjoyed reading that. And, of course, plenty of other things to talk about with the Rugby World Cup on the horizon as well. Let's start with the book, though. The book is called Open Side, and it certainly catches you in an open and honest mood. Was that the intention when you set out to, to write the book? Uh, it was always my intention. I'm not sure whether um, the, the publishers at HarperCollins thought it was going to perhaps be that open and honest. And um, obviously, being open side, Flanker, that's why it was called open side. But originally, it was, uh, I think the plan was to call it something like too big, too fast, too strong. Mm. Not necessarily me, just the game, about the collision sport and where it's going. But I think once then they started getting the text back and seeing probably how uh, honest I was chatting about my career because I guess people think they see rugby players you know big alpha male don't feel pressure don't feel nerves impenetrable you've know, got don't show emotion that then when I was actually talking about how I perceive my career like the ups and downs then I thought well this is probably a bit more open and honest than we'd thought which is where the name change open side came in 
which I thought was really fitting, so that's why it's called Open Side. But um, yeah, perhaps a little bit more honest. I don't mind about showing perhaps the more vulnerable mm. sides of myself throughout my, throughout my career. Because I played like probably you know really hostile physical style, but you know I found it not all the time, but you know, parts of my career I found it psychologically you know very hard to, to play. So and physically, which is where obviously the collision side of it comes into. So yeah, no, it covers a, a few bases. Perhaps you know you talk about the. I suppose, yeah, the, you know, not being afraid to show some vulnerability there. Perhaps there's no bit more, um, I guess, where that's more at show than when you're talking about being on the eve of the, the second Lions test. Maybe just talk us through, you know, without spoiling the book, yeah. kind of what was what was going through your mind at that stage. Oh, God. I, so when you're, like, playing to the Lions, obviously the pinnacle, like, and it's all I ever wanted to do, and fans outside will look and be like, oh, these boys are living the dream. And you are, like, you, I know you are, and it's an amazing privilege to get there. But when you're there, you can't help but... Maybe maybe I was putting more pressure on myself than other players. I'm so desperate, so, so desperate to win that test series and to be like a victorious team. But like that, that eve of that test, like I was strapped, that game I was strapped up with like eight body parts, both ankles, both knees, both shoulders, my hip, my elbow. I, I was just hanging on by a thread that tall and I just wanted to be able to deliver. And I was worried I couldn't from a physical point of view. I was coming back from injury, so I didn't start the first test. I was starting this game, so the pressure to play well, starting as a captain, um, was enormous. And all these things, I remember just on the phone with my mum, and I was like, if there was, I just, and I was never going to do it, but I just felt if I could just escape this just for 24 hours and just jump on a plane back home, like I, like I, I would, you know, and pro- I probably wouldn't have if it actually really happened, but that's just how I felt, like it was all just snowballing, but when you then go through the game and you can't the other side well, then it's completely worth all the negative stuff that you go through you just got to kind of like just see it through really but yeah I think people might see Lions Tours think that we're you know out on jet skis and having fun and having a laugh like on the DVD how that portrays then we play a game on the weekend then we go out and have a few more drinks again I'm like that's very far from what a Lions Tour is actually about lots of travelling Lots of pressure, lots of training, injury management, commercial and sponsorship opportunities, press, comp- like all day, every day. I remember it, was, it wasn't until about week five, we actually had a full day off with nothing. We could wake up in our beds that day and we could go back to sleep and have nothing. It was like five weeks, you know, and especially as me as captain, having all the other responsibilities you've got to do. So obviously over the course of time, that just snowballs and, it, it, you know, it got it bottlenecked, you know, in that evening for our second test. And the book has a theme of leadership running throughout it. Obviously, you touched on, on some of that there. Why is it that you kind of chose to, to concentrate on that rather than just being, I guess, a bit more of a, like you know, the previous books were yeah. up and down, you know, rugby yeah. tales, really? Yeah, I think uh, this has been much more enjoyable because like, I've managed to go like delve deeper into the sort of, like sort of talk about the mental side of the sport, um, then the leadership like lessons I've learned as well because I went into the like a leadership role at 22, like not wanting to do it. Um, nowhere near the best captain at that moment in time as well and I had to learn quickly how to do it and I changed my style not changed my style but um, I learned you know how to adapt like to, the, to certain situations along the way like I compare myself as a captain when I was 27, 28 when I finished compared to 22 oh worlds apart like, worlds apart I was so much better towards the end of my career but so yeah so I talk about like the like leadership lessons I learned along the way my principles of leadership which I applied in my career which hopefully can you know, not just be um, relatable to rugby players and captains, but to any sport or business leader or whoever. You know, so I hope there's lessons for everyone to learn there as well. Yeah, it definitely comes across. And you know, you've spoken about captaincy, and I guess a, a tricky relationship you had with it. You said you know, at the start of your career, you hated 
captain inside. Yeah. How, how did that relationship change over the over the years? Oh, it's a strong word, but I, I did hate it. Yeah. But you do it because it's such a privilege. You almost feel like embarrassed and like like shameful if if I was willing to turn down being captain for Wales of the Lions. You can't ever turn that down, but. First Lions tour didn't want to do it, but you do it. You have to. Like Lions captain, like geez, how, how many times is anyone Lions captain? Like you've got to do it. But then that, in that tour, there was you know Paul O'Connell and Brian O'Driscoll, and I was thinking, like, surely those guys are better contenders. So I didn't really believe in myself. Um, like, as a player, I always did, mm. but not as a captain, I didn't. But then in seventeen, I was completely different for New Zealand. I remember, like, even though I wasn't Wales captain that moment in time, because. I dropped the captaincy because I thought I just needed to focus on my form. I just need to nail the Six Nations. Unfortunately, I did probably have one of my better Six Nations campaigns I've ever had. Then I was very comfortable to take that captaincy role because I knew I was playing well. So then I remember I was thinking like about Warren, Gatland. I was like, oh, please ring me because I'm the best guy to lead this team to beat New Zealand because I was just like, I felt it was my calling like to beat New Zealand, you know, for the Lions and help that team do that. You know, I was desperate to do it. So... Um, yeah, completely changed like psychologically as a captain from younger to older. And I guess the book kind of leads you through that a little bit, you know, and how I changed throughout throughout the years with that. Do you miss it, captaincy? No, <laughs> <laughs> no. I mean, like, so I sort of said, which sounds quite strong. I didn't enjoy eighty percent of my career. I enjoyed only twenty percent. People might be like, "Well, that's an, that's very ungrateful," but I'm like, "No, no," because the twenty percent I enjoyed outweighs the eighty yeah, percent I didn't yeah, enjoy yeah. tenfold. You know. But the 8% you don't enjoy, who enjoys going on the internal flights every two, three days, yeah. travelling around the country all the time, or doing constant sponsorship and commercial things, or constantly speaking to media and press, or going on the physio bed and having operations and injections and having blood drawn out of you and getting rid of inflammation and having MRI scans, like, and then the stress it puts your family through, and then not being able to walk the dog because everybody wants to stop you and ask you why you lost on the weekend. Like, they're all the things that people don't see, so yeah, being a rugby player playing eighty minutes was incredible. I, I loved one hundred percent of that. I, I wasn't ever nervous one minute yeah. from minute one to minute eighty. I loved that. I was never nervous because that, that was like your com- that's that's your comfort zone almost. But you're out your comfort zone. All the anxiety beforehand, and then dealing with the aftermath of a game and all those things I mentioned. That's the bits you don't enjoy. But that's actually the majority of being a player. You know, so playing the privilege of playing for the Lions or for your national team on the on the on your stadium. 75,000 happens what 10 times a year not even 1% at the time so that's what I meant when I say yeah. that so when I explain it I think people understand a bit more but this, this, the style of it sounds quite drastic I think there's a lot of you know, there's a lot of sacrifice that you mentioned within the, the book as well and a lot about mentality and you know whether that's I, I kind of I've raised a little smile in when it talks about 2011 you said you, you turned down a slice of your own birthday cake because oh, yeah, it, it, it was a couple of days before oh, the, the island quarter yeah. final <laughs> now like you said the reality is that yeah. that's probably not going to make a difference during the game yeah. but mentally to you it did yeah so oh god yeah I remember the, it was lovely. The squad uh, brought out the happy birthday thing, cake, all sang happy birthday. I was like, oh, thanks, yeah, cut it all up and didn't have a piece. <laughs> so I remember I was in a room with um, Luke Charteris going, when I was, mind you, when, as I got older, I realised oh, I can have a biscuit and a yeah. slice of cake and it's not going to affect my performance, you know. If anything, you need it. You need to bang in some calories pre-match because <laughs> you need the energy. And particularly post-match, you, know, you expend like 
I'm guessing I have no idea, 4,000 calories in the game maybe, a match day. You, you can eat kind of guilt-free after a game, you know. But I was in, a, in my room on a, two, a Thursday before a game on a Saturday for Wales and I was having a cup of tea with Dan Lidget and Lucharis. Uh, I was room with Dan and Luke popped in for a chat, as you do in the evening. So we made a cup of tea and he started dipping a shortbread into his cup of tea, 48 hours from a game. And I wasn't even trying to be funny. I remember, I remember saying, what are you doing? And he said, well, you're going to eat that now, before a game. And he sort of looked, the biscuit looked to me like, but at the time I thought it was normal. Like, what like what are you on about type thing? But I was so um, strict on myself about what I ate and how I prepared. I always sort of prided myself on being the best professional I could be. As I got old, I learned to relax a bit. Uh, and I would have a biscuit two days from a game. But yeah, I was very sort of, um, from a professional point of view, my mindset... I was very strict on myself because it just it just gave me every single I wanted every single possible edge I could get you know but that's just what I was like preparing for game and yeah it's very, like obviously very meticulous when it comes to your own training and preparation and and from what I can gather from the book and having heard you speak before you wanted that to rub off on the squad and it seemed kind of really evident in in both those World Cup campaigns and on the Lions <clears throat> that you were kind of a lead by example captain and you wanted people to, to follow that lead. Was that was that a fair assessment? Yeah, it is, yeah. So you know, I just wanted to be the best professional I could be off the field and then I wanted to be the most fierce competitor on the field. So that was kind of, kind of like how I saw myself as like a leader. And then the captaincy, you obviously have to teach yourself and learn... Uh, how to communicate with referees you know you've got to get used to speaking in front of the group you know regularly as a captain and learning the tactics and not learning the tactics you all know tactics but like there'll be front rows and front fives who don't understand kicking strategy mm. where if you're captain you've got to understand the kicking strategy wherever you are in the field you know which starter plays we're going to use in which areas of the field which are things that your number 10s know but you as a number well I was number 7 me as a captain you have to know that and there's only a few players on the pitch who need to know that level of detail, which might be your number 10s, your captain if he's not a line-out caller, and then your line-out caller, because your line-out caller needs to call ball, which is going to suit the start of play that your 10s calling. So that's why you'll always see a quick conversation, or when I was playing anyway, it might be like myself, Alan Wynne jones and Dan Bigger, have a quick chat because Dan will say the start of play he wants to use, and Wynne will think about which line-outs will suit that, and you can call your line-out accordingly, and then as captain you've got to oversee those things. So, But these are things which a captain has to do. Well, if you're not captain and you're just a number six or a front rower or a wing or a centre, you, you can just focus yeah. on your individual role in that start play, but when you've got a captaincy role, you've got to like oversee all these things all game, all the time, as well as speaking to the ref. So that's how captaincy can kind of distract performance a little bit and why there was times I wanted to take it away from myself because I just wanted to be the young teenage boy that I used to be where I just wanted to go out and just be as fierce as possible and just just cause collisions and just like tackle and be aggressive you know because that's my game there was times I wanted the captaincy stripped from me so I could just be that and go back into that little world again which I which I love but um, yeah they're all the things I guess that I explain about captaincy um, we've touched on 2011 which obviously during that Rugby World Cup you led Wales to World Cup semi-final now anyone listening to this will know what, what happened there's some amazing highs and some you know some incredible lows during that tournament Looking back at it, are you able to kind of enjoy those highs and look at the the, the great win over Ireland, for example, yeah. rather than just thinking about the, the <clears throat> semi-final heartache? So my parents got that semi-final shirt. I remember at the end of that uh, World Cup, we have like a big squad signing session. So like we'll say, right guys, like 10 items per player. Um, we've got a massive room in the team hotel set out. Like there was literally like, must have been 30 big 
circular dinner tables you can imagine and we just put a kit out and we went down on an afternoon off and we just like everyone was there for hours just signing everyone's kit so you can take it back home to yeah. family, friends, charity, whatever I remember thinking this shirt is probably going to be worth signing for the squad <laughs> so um, I remember I took my shirt down as one of my items I put it down and everyone signed it nicely so I went, I went home and I gave it to my parents you know I was like oh it was like you know, it was a semi-final shirt so they've got it up in their front room, but they're like, um, oh, do you mind if you put the picture of you and Van Clerk in there? <laughs> so I was like, well, no, because <laughs> when I come home, that's a shirt I led Wales to a semi-final yeah. in, not the shirt I got sent off in, that's how I perceive it, you know? But then now I'm retired, I could, I wouldn't mind if I had pictures up there now, because when I'm playing, I don't want to revisit those emotions, you know, yeah. when I was playing and be reminded about that. But now I can see, well, it was like a, it was one of the defining moments of my career and I wouldn't change it because... Not that I wanted to get sent off, but I think the success that we had the two years after that from winning the Grand Slam, then winning another Six Nations the year after, then having 14 Welsh guys go on the Lions Tour and playing a test to beat Australia. Had that red card have happened, you know, I don't know whether we would have had the two years after. Like Sometimes you've got to go through a bit of adversity to come to mm. the other end, and it might have helped shape that team. So I've always been a believer things happen for a reason. Uh, which is why I wouldn't change that red card. So now, if they wanted to put that red card in, now I'm retired. I don't mind seeing it now. I know it was probably quite a point, in, you know, point in my career, and I probably developed as a person massively from that. If one moment happened in my career, that would probably be the one. So um, and I'm not ashamed of it. I was probably a bit embarrassed of it when I was playing, but now I've learned not to be really. Because you, you talk about owning your mistakes in the book, and you know whether it's whether you agree it was a red card or not. Like you say, you didn't mean to get sent off. Was that how difficult a process was that to go through? It, it was difficult. Um, I kind of say like a story about everything I went through after that. Um, but then just uh, which obviously we haven't got time to. But then, but to sum it up, what really put it, put it to bed for me was it was six weeks later. And I sort of explain on this, but six weeks later, I was doing another BBC interview. So like, I mean, everyone was doing interviews yeah. from all over the country, coming down to the Blues training ground to speak to me on press afternoons and that. All wanted to know one thing about the red card, and then. Uh, they asked me one thing about the red cards again like six weeks later but that morning my granddad passed away and uh, they probably wanted some really emotive answer mm. about uh, how devastating the red card was and how many people I might have let down and stuff but I just said that my granddad passed away this morning and it, and it finally made me realise that it's a much more important thing to worry about than the game of rugby and that's what put it to bed and then from then I was like mm. I just moved on because you re- you think when you're young and you're young 20s you're breaking through as a pro and you don't have perhaps you don't have a partner you don't have a girlfriend whatever you're probably living at home with a family so you're not worrying about mortgages and bills and all that all these real things that people have to worry about in life all you're worrying about you might not be studying all you're focused on is rugby and you think it's your life and it's the be all and end all and that like it's all it's all you're about it's all anyone is thinking about you but really like there's so much more going on in life than that and until you go through a little bit of hardship, really, to take yourself out of your little bubble and actually gain some perspective over the real world, you know, that's when you realise, oh, what I'm going through is actually not as bad as it seems, you know. So that, that moment really put that red card to bed for me. And fast forward four years into Rugby World Cup 2015, led the, the side into that World Cup again, uh, including a, you know, a Titanic game at, at Twickenham. Something I've always wanted to ask you. What, you, brought, you brought it up, not me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, what did what did Mike Brown say to you as you as you, as you up? Um, <laughs> I so I Dan Lydia put in that huge hit on Tom Woods, yeah. you know, which people remember. It was like that. You see those NFL games where like somebody spins around and eighty degrees. You think, how is that ever going to happen? 
and that's what happened with Dan. And I can right. If I was on the England team, I would have been angry. Of course, I would. But I was on the Welsh team, so I was really happy because you know we, you know, asserted our authority. You know, when you're away from home, and a team's going to try and like physically intimidate you, when an opportunity comes where you got to stand up for yourself, you got to do it as a fifteen and. Just like all these little psychological wins, England needed to know that we weren't there to mess around, you know. And not that I ever wanted Dan to put in a dangerous tackle, mm. but I'm always going to back up my players. If it was dangerous and he put a shot into the head of someone, yeah. I'd be saying, "Mate, that's stupid, and you cost us." But like in my eyes, he just went, he hit him so hard, and he did try and wrap. And I've been tackled by Dan, so I know. Um, I've seen players in the tunnel go up to him pre-match and say, "Please don't hit hit me in my knees like you have been." on other players because they're concerned for their health you know like he was a feared tackler defensive player so he just launched himself into Tom Wood and just the angle it was he tried to wrap him and Dan if you know Dan he's not a malicious guy mm. unbelievably fierce competitor but he's not a nasty guy which is why I backed him so we all went in and when I rush into those situations when everyone's getting on top of each other I'm actually the first time shouting is actually no penalties because I don't want anything to be reversed I'll give away three points so I'm not in there giving it the big one I'm not a fighter I'm not that sort of what can you do this, this day and age now I'm telling you yeah. like, you can't do anything in a game it's all handbags so I'm just saying to anyone just like discipline no penalties don't want to reverse this don't want to give away two three points I think we got another scrum for me I can't remember but and then I was just getting tugged on the back of my neck which I always ignore because it happens but I got tugged three times properly so I just turned around to be like who the hell is it I'm trying to I'm, I'm the pacifist here I'm trying to calm things down and then it was Mike Brown, and I just like I was just asking him politely, like, "What on earth are you doing?" Like, I'm just really trying to like sort things out here, and you're just adding fuel to the fire. Um, but yeah, you know, I, <laughs> I, just, yeah, I mean, it went viral back over Wales. But I'm just thinking, um, and he knows this himself. Like, you know, when when you're playing games and you're behind your forward pack, it's very easy to be brave, you know. Yeah. Um, so yeah, just something along along those lines. <laughs> And winning, winning that game with you know with half the backline injured, there was massive injuries going into it. I was in that. I was at that that game in Cardiff before the the tournament when when Webb and uh, and Halfpenny got yeah, injured. Yeah. And then during that one game to have all of those injuries happen almost at the same time. Yeah. How much of a test of your leadership was that at that point? You know, was that sense of belief always there that you could go on and win this game? I think that's what Wales have, like we've always. I think Gatland has instilled in us is that resilience. Um, so yeah, the, the injuries were a joke. And had we had won, so that England game, obviously we were, we were littered with injuries. I don't know how. Like looking back, I'm like, we should never have won that game. England's home record in Twickenham is incredible. Anyway, they got a great home home ratio, win ratio. Never mind the added emotion that it's a home World Cup game. I look at the injury. Like, how do we like? At the time, I didn't appreciate it because it was just one more step on the ladder that we had to complete just to get to a World Cup final. So. It's only in hindsight I look back and I'm thinking, geez, that's probably one of Wales' biggest ever victories. In the history of Welsh rugby, like it was a momentous occasion, but at the time, so say like 2013 when we beat England, 30 points of three, we can enjoy that. Mm. It's the finale, it's the end of a tournament, you can have a drink and enjoy it, we won something. But this was just another group game. So we had to get ready for Australia within six, seven days. So you can't really, you can enjoy it, but you have to move on from it pretty quick, you know? So I didn't enjoy it perhaps like I should have, but now I look back, I have no idea how like we got through that game given the circumstances and I kind of talk in the book really was the sleep deprivation because 
I don't know if oh, you might remember it was in the news but yeah. I was in a room with Dan and he was adamant we had a ghost in our room and I can't <laughs> go into that so I didn't sleep for two days um, but yeah so add it all together I literally have no idea how we won that game and you know again a lot of the um, uh, as I said throughout this kind of so much of the book is about mentality and, and getting those those wins in massive games I suppose Wales in during your your tenure as captain <clears throat> The question mark was always over beating the Southern Hemisphere sides and a lot of the press were kind of always quick to say that that was down to a mentality and a sense of belief. Was that fair criticism or, you know, were, were they down the wrong lines at those, posi- um, those points? Maybe. So I always said, I was quite honest, I remember when I was playing and we hadn't beaten Australia for like 10 games mm-hmm. in a row or something and then like, is it a psychological thing? I'm like, well, no, because... We've beaten England, we've beaten France, and like we, we had a good run against South Africa. We beat South Africa like four times now, you know, in the last five, so since 14, the last five years. So we've seen teams who can beat Australia that we can beat on many occasions. So the psychology, psychologically, I don't think that's it. I was like, they've just been better than us. Like, I, do, I don't think you're unlucky 13 times in a row, yeah. 12 times in a row. They were obviously just that little bit better. There were some games which were desperate how we lost, and like, oh, they were horrendous losses to have. Last minute penalties, last minute, last second tries, but they were obviously just a little bit better. But I do admit, I never had a belief problem. Um, but you don't know for sure what's going to do players' minds. So that's why I think the lines are different to Wales, mm. perhaps. Maybe for Wales, out of the twenty-three, maybe I I know where I look at Alan Wynn and Toby Faletau and Jamie Roberts and John Davis and George North and the Halfpenny and Adam Jones, Gethin Jenkins. I know they believe they can beat anyone in the world. But can I say that about the whole 23? Like, I don't actually know. Mm. Like, maybe those doubts might creep into a younger, more impressionable person's head. But for the Lions, when you're in New Zealand, you've got 23 of the most competitive animals in the British and Irish Isles, all in one changing room. Every one of those guys genuinely believes, wants to, and just expects to beat New Zealand. With you know, The psychology is a lot different when you've got all those guys in one room, which is why I think the Lions did so well. Um, but can I say that on behalf of the whole Welsh team? Like, I can't say yes or no. I, I don't know, and maybe that was a reason. But I think that was combined with the fact that we obviously weren't quite good enough on those days. As well. And kind of, you know, you mentioned a lot of those those leaders in there now. Some of them still playing, some of them retired. And on paper, you know, looks a squad even right now full of leaders. You know, you had Dan Bigger and, and Ken Owens into that list. Are there any kind of emerging players that you've seen either through punditry work or you know, connection with the Blues? That are going to be the you know the future leaders of Wales, the ones who are, are going to be doing that that real strong leadership job and driving the team forward. I think um, a player who's been great in the Northern Hemisphere, and if you've been watching Six Nations and Autumn Internationals, you know about him. Josh Navidi's been brilliant for Wales, and he's been brilliant for the Blues for about like six, seven years, but for ages. But Wales, we've had sevens coming off conveyor belts, yeah. so he's, you know, he's obviously had to wait his time to have an opportunity. But he's been playing. Um, and he's been brilliant for Wales. I think this World Cup could be a real platform to him to announce himself. And I've sort of said before, um, I really, I think someone like Tom Curry is going to be that kind of player who's going to play for England and really announce himself as like a world-class back rower. Sam Hunderhill is similar. They've got those abilities. But you need... like Those boys have already played well in Six Nations and already played well in Autumn Games. But when you do it on the world mm. stage at World Cups or Lions tours, that's when you catapult yourself into genuine world-class status, you know. So I reckon those boys can do that this World Cup. How aware are you of that, that step up in intensity when you're on those? I mean, obviously, you, you mentioned a bit about the, the Lions tour there, but 
you know, when you went to when you went to 2011 as a 22 year old, how aware were you of the magnitude of what was happening? So, like being in New Zealand is it's, if anything is better. Like mm. 2011, all the pressure was on New Zealand because you know they hadn't won a World Cup since. 87 yeah yeah 87 so like the pressure on them was incredible so they were always called the bottlers and everything so we went in under the radar so for us like we had no like your Twitter feed's a bit busier than normal and back then so I was 11 I remember I remember I think I was a kiddie when I hit 5,000 followers like you know I was like you know social media was nothing compared to what it is now so like your social media feed might be a little bit busier than normal but like nothing really you don't get what's going on at home which is why then in 15 I realised because it was like a whole World Cup we played a couple of group games in um, Principality and a couple in Twickenham and stuff and that was then enormous so I think Japan seems like that now it seems like there's like with the world nowadays everything's so much more accessible with social media and press and all that I think boys will go out there now some of the younger guys who've had this will be their first big tournament World Cup of Lions and they'll go out there and dealing with that as opposed to being in say if you're an English player being in Penny Hill Park mm. you know with your normal food normal training regime you can pop home you know stuff like that when you're away in Japan and then you've got all this pressure and all this hype around you and then you can still deliver you know that's the different sort of psychological challenges that you have you know in World Cups so when players can rock up and play at home yeah great well done but it's going away from home out your comfort zone and playing up and rocking up you know that's when I think you get your genuine world class status and heading into this World Cup, very different role for you. You know your new career as a as a pundit. How you know? Do you kind of apply that same kind of professional ultra professionalism that you had as a player? Do you do the same thing with with punditry? You know, you're watching games twice over and, yeah. and memorizing the you know the Russian the Russian back row forwards names and, <laughs> yeah. and all these kind of things. Yeah, I, I want to make sure that I can be quite insightful. Yeah. So I make sure, like, say you get given loads of stats, and out of the stats, I might not think ninety percent are relevant. But 10%, I, well, I read them all because 10% of them will be good. I think, oh, actually, that is specific. And I might drop it in somewhere if it's necessary. But yeah, I make sure I watch my games. I want people to watch to, I always think it's like an education type coach type thing where I want to actually, if someone can listen to me and hear something I say about a driving line out or a kick chase or a breakdown and they think, oh, I didn't realise mm. that. And they learn something which, or they might be like, take it back to their team and coach them that. Or somebody might be going, oh, I didn't realise that's why they did that. And that's like a win for me. So I kind of see it as that sort of role. So I want to be able to like educate people. Rugby's a complicated game. Like it is complicated. I want people to understand why we do that. So many times people say, oh, we kick too much. I'm like, who's the best team in the world? And they say New Zealand. I'm like, they kick the most out of anyone in world rugby because there's a strategy behind kicking. So as an example. So yeah, I quite like explaining all these things. So I like the challenge of it. The only difference is... I still consider myself like a good professional doing it. It's like I wouldn't ever just want to just turn up and just blag a game and talk yeah. about it, you know. But the only difference is I'll just eat my body weight in chocolate while doing it, which is <laughs> lovely. So I don't have to be so strict on my diet. So it's nice. I can eat a nice. I can have a nice bag of minstrels, bit of Harry Boach, hot chocolate, and that. When you're back on air, just clear the table, put it back by your feet, and then when you're off air again, I can pick them all back up again. That's the only difference. Really. Because uh, yeah, you know, given how intense your career was, you'd be, f- you know, you could be forgiven for going. Actually, do you know what? I want to, I want to leave rugby behind now and go and do something different. Was that ever an option, or did you think, no, you know, I'm, um, I, I want to start, I want to stay in this game and, and experience a different side of it. Yeah, no, that's a good question because that's actually exactly how I felt. I remember thinking, oh, I just want to get get away from this game. Like it's just I've had. I remember when I used to play, I was like, I could never coach. Like, but then when you're playing, it's because when you're playing, you want to get away from it on your days off. I never would have wanted to analyse any more than I had to. But then 
So when I finished, I had about two or three months I did nothing involved with the game. I knew I was always going to do something, but for two or three months I enjoyed doing nothing. It was a really nice getting away from the game of rugby. But as the longer I'm away from it, the more I'm actually like, you realise how much you love the game and you realise how why, that's why you got there in the first place. And I feel like, well, I can give back. Like There's so much I know. I feel like... I feel like I'm only really scratching the surface when I talk to people about like rugby. I want to be able to like go to a young back rower and just give him everything that's in my brain. So he's got that from the age of twenty, twenty one. Um so yeah, the longer I'm out the more involved I actually feel like getting. But originally, initially straight after my retirement, I was enjoying like time with the family and away from the game. But now naturally everything I'm doing I'm just gravitating closer and closer back to the game, which is great. Sam, it's been amazing to speak to you. Thank you. Uh, thanks for opening up with us. And uh, yeah, we uh, will hopefully we'll, we'll get you back on the attacking scrum at some point in the future as well. No, thanks for having me on. Great to chat to you. Thanks. Cheers. So there you have it. Our very special episode with Sam Warburton. The book Open Side is out now, published by HarperCollins. And we're going to be giving away a couple of copies too. So stay tuned to our Twitter page at Attacking Scrum. And also make sure you like our Facebook page too. And you can get your hands on a copy. Finally, thanks to Sam once again for doing it. Thoroughly enjoyed chatting to him. And if you like listening to it, then please do leave us a review on iTunes. It helps us out massively. Finally, thanks to our sponsors at So Coffee Trades. If you're a coffee lover, make sure you head over to So Coffee Trades co.uk to get yourself some top quality coffee we've got the rugby world cup coming up so there's gonna be no shortage of content so stay tuned to the attacking scrum thanks for listening sports social podcast network